You may ask, how did this tradition get started? I'll tell you. I don't know. But it's a tradition. And because of our traditions, every one of us knows who he is and what God expects him to do. Hello everyone and welcome to Let's Talk Torah. I'm Rabbi Tzvi Jacobson with NRM Streamcast. We'll spend our time talking Torah, learning stuff, and having fun while we learn. You can always send your comments and questions to our mailbag at letstalktorah.gmail.com. And of course I will answer as many as I can. As everyone knows, I am a teacher. I teach third grade children amongst many others. And we all want to help our children. We want to see our children to be happy with themselves, to be successful. And sometimes we just can't figure it out. Today, we are joined by two guests, Sam Goldstein and Robert Brooks, two psychologists and authors of numerous books. But today, we will discuss their latest book, which I have read, Tenacity in Children, Nurturing the Seven Instincts for Lifetime Success. How are you guys today? Very good. I'm great. Nice to see you. It is good to be seen from opposite ends of the country. I don't know how, I, I thought you guys worked together, but you don't work in the same practice together, right? That's correct. Okay. Sometimes, sometimes we go a whole year without seeing each other face to face. I can't imagine why that would happen to anyone anywhere. But, you know, we do the best we could. So let's just get everybody to say hello. Um, uh, Bob, if you could tell us first a little bit about yourself, and then Sam, and then we'll dig in. Okay, I'm a uh, psychologist. i uh, faculty at Harvard Medical School. I uh, live out right outside the Boston area. And uh, even though Sam and I live in different parts of the country, uh, we have collaborated for almost 30 years now. And thank heavens for a lot of technology, which has helped us along the way. Sam? Uh, I am a, a neuropsychologist. I guess the difference between us is a psychologist seeks to know your diagnosis. A neuropsychologist wants to know why. So our approach is a little different. I've been in Salt Lake. I grew up in Brooklyn. I've been in Salt Lake since 1977. I'm affiliated with the university. And I operate a clinic. We're in our 41st year. I started with a neurologist. We see about five or 600 children a year. About half have brain injuries. Uh, the kids that come to see me are the proverbial Jobs from the Bible. They typically have four, five, six problems that they're uh, attempting to cope with. And Bob and I have worked together a long time because we uh, found that we shared a frustration that our training and early careers focused on fixing what was wrong with children. And we eventually realized, not just through our experiences, but from uh, ongoing long-term studies, that fixing what's wrong isn't particularly effective in the long run. And both of us uh, were at the right time, in the right place, at the right moment, and we had an epiphany that maybe we should spend more time trying to understand what's right about children and, and their strengths, and that the more liabilities they have, the more important their strengths become. And we've written uh, 14 books together, textbooks, trade books. Uh, we present together. Uh, we have done less of that uh, of late. Uh, but I always learn something when I listen to Bob speak. I hope he feels the same about me. 
Yeah, you uh, like. Well, actually, I always Ed. say Sam is a walking encyclopedia. If there's any information I need, I just contact Sam. He's he's just an incredible, uh, well-rounded person. And it's been a wonderful, a really wonderful collaboration. So I'm just going to comment on what you said, Sam. I always tell over the joke because I, I, I am a teacher. I am in a classroom. I have fascinating children in my classroom that probably some of them you could help. Um, but I, I always say the a famous story. You probably know the story. Um, there was a... a uh, a famous person, whoever it was, not important, he's going with a fisherman, and this person is talking to the fisherman, do you, do you uh, appreciate art? And the fisherman says, no, art, I, I never got art. Oh, you lost a third of your life. And then they're traveling, and they're deeper out into the, into, you're already laughing, they're deeper out into the pond, and, and he says, maybe you appreciate, like, music, classical music, and the fisherman says... You know, I never got music. It just wasn't my, my style. And then all of a sudden, they're in the middle of this lake, and the boat springs a leak. A, a, a leak. And the fisherman says to this uh, educated man, he says, do you know how to swim? And this man says, you know, I never had time to learn how to swim. So, well, you've lost your whole life, right? You, you know the joke. Because you, you, at first you said, Sam, you said you want, a neurosurgeon wants to know why. And as a teacher or as a parent, you know, it's nice to know why my child is climbing the walls or swinging from the chandelier, for those that still have chandeliers. Uh, but it doesn't help me to know why. I need to know what to do. But I think what we're going to discuss is maybe I don't need to know what to do this second, but I need to have a plan of action so I don't have my child swing from the chandelier. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yes. And, and coming back to what you mentioned a minute ago, you know, we have pathologized and demonized and moralized everything in childhood. Every difference has become a diagnosis. And yet, uh, the more we do that, uh, the further behind we get. So every generation of children over the last seven has had a greater incidence, for example, of depression in their adolescent years. We, Bob and I have come to the conclusion that, that, uh, uh, an organized culture like ours eventually becomes so smart and so smug that we think we know everything about preparing the next generation and we fail to appreciate that which helped every generation for thousands before ours get where they're going without schools and without specialists and without medications. And But you're right. Un, but But I do think what we've said to parents has been when a parent says, well, why doesn't my child sit still? We've said, well, your child has hyperactivity. And the parent asks, well, why does he have hyperactivity? And the, and the expert responds, well, because he doesn't sit still. This doesn't help any. And, and I do think understanding in a reasoned and reasonable way that it's not your fault and, and what drives the problem is an essential foundation to motivate people to follow through. In our field, whether it's education or mental health or, or, or even in religion and Judaism, if people don't have an appreciation of why they need to do certain things, they just don't comply. They don't do it. Yeah, you know, it's so well said, and I so appreciate listening to you because, again, as a teacher in a school, and I, I watch children struggle, and when you go to a parent and say, well, you've got to do ABC, and the parents are frustrated 
um, instead of actually trying to help the child, they sort of just build up a wall and say, it's your problem, our kid is great, and it must be something you're doing wrong, instead of saying, how can we help this child? Right, Bob? Yeah, well, you know, first of all, we have to remember something. A lot of parents, in terms of parent-teacher relations, a lot of parents feel judged even if a teacher hasn't judged them. When they go into school, the child has uh, problems. So there are a whole group of parents I work with who would say, I'm exhausted going into schools. I feel every new teacher I meet, somehow I am to blame. And what Sam and I have tried to do is really do away with blame games to understand. But what we, we found is very important. We talk about a concept called personal control as part of resilience. And personal control is like the serenity prayer. You focus on what you have control over. So... We may have had no control over a child that we didn't having, say, learning problems or attentional problems, but we try to help people because that's what fosters hope is to say, okay, your child may have this diagnosis, your child may have this problem. What we have to look at is what are the strategies we can use now that we know your child has whatever problem it is so we can move forward. So many people fall prey. I was just speaking this morning to someone, so it's fresh in my mind, to what I call, you know, the victim's mentality. Why did my child have to do this? Why did I have to do this? One of my toughest jobs was principal of a school in a locked door unit of a psychiatric hospital. And I got to the point where I was feeling so burned out where I would say, why are we getting kids like this? Well, I'm principal of a school in a locked door unit of a psychiatric hospital. Who did I think was going to come in? So I had to be able to say to myself to have a much better mindset, I have no control over the kids I'm getting in the school. What I have control over is my attitude and response to these situations. So having an understanding can guide us then to look at what are the things we could do. And in our newest book, I mean, as Sam mentioned, it's our 14th, we really started to look at, and so much of it came from Sam and his knowledge of the research, what are those inborn, from birth, those inborn attributes that are there in kids, these wonderful attributes, that it's then our role as parents and teachers to nurture. And as we got into the book, I was amazed by attributes like altruism and empathy and compassion. Are there, you see the rudimentary forms in three, four-month-old children. And so then, it, as someone recently told me, they said, your and Sam new book is very hopeful because you're saying there's all the, there's these very positive qualities that we have to understand so we could nurture. So probably a overly long-winded uh, response to your uh, question, but I, I did want to bring in a few key components of our work with parents and teachers. Yeah, no, it's fantastic. Like, so I told you, I read the book and I enjoyed the book and I even started using it. I have a child in my class. Um, he hasn't been fully diagnosed, um, but let's just say he could roll around the back of my classroom. Um, he could dance and spin when he bumps into things and destroys things. And I say, what happened? Weren't you paying attention? And he said, I forgot that I was supposed to pay attention. All, he could walk out of the classroom. He needs to read a brilliant, probably the smartest child I've ever had in over 25 years. But so smart that the rest of his body is not connected to his brain. So recently, he'll go to the office, and we couldn't get him back. So I say to him, I say, in the office, I can't tell you what page it's on. You probably know what page it's on. I said, okay, I know you need a few minutes till you're ready to come back. Do you want three more minutes or five more minutes? 
And he actually sits there and he thinks. And he'll, and he'll say, five minutes. I say, okay, we could do five minutes. Do I need to come back and remind you or can the secretary tell you? No, the secretary can tell me. Great. Sure enough, five minutes later, he comes rolling back into class, sort of makes it to a seat in the back of the classroom where it's safer. But, but it was just such a good idea instead of just fighting with him. I just gave, I, I put him in control. It was fantastic. Go ahead, Sam. You're smiling at me. You're so proud of me. <laughs> I, I, am, I am proud of you. You know, probably one of the strongest personal drives we have is to be in control. And, and young children, before they hit that age at which they perceive they can control themselves, they'll do what you t ask them to do. And when they hit two, sometimes we call it terrible twos, because they realize they have free will. They don't have to do what you tell them. And, and we, we call that sometimes the terrible two. So self, controlling oneself is, is essential. And the child you described has, has poor self-discipline. One of our books, uh, we need to send, uh, I need to send you, I have your address. I'm yes. going to send you a couple more of our books because you're such a good fan. But our book <laughs> called, titled Raising a Self-Disciplined Child. Because mm -hmm. Bob and I try not to write books about diagnostic labels. We write books mm -hmm. about processes uh, so, so that people can understand them. And so we did, we authored a book, but let me go back just one step because I really want to talk about tenacity, but to help you understand how we arrived at this essential triad that we talk about. So the first series of books we did focused on the role that strengths play and, and, and our, our perception and experience and the research supported that, and, and to use a term Bob coined, the, the larger your island of competence, the more important it was that you had, uh, uh, the, the, the larger your ocean of inadequacy, the more important it was you had an island of competence, something that, that anchored you. And, and so we wrote about, again, what the research supported, this ordinary magic of being responsible and problem solving and being connected to people and having what we call a charismatic person in your life. And, and then after a number of years, we realized that knowing what to do didn't equate to doing what you know. And that in order to do what you know, as the boy in the back of your classroom, required self-discipline. And self-discipline can be brought online by interest, by motivation, but, but some people, just their biology, and again, we're not biological determinists, but we think biology affects probability, not destiny. But some people just, it's, a, it's hard for them. So we focused on self-discipline. And, and then a number of years went by, we, we authored some other books, and we realized that possessing the concepts and the mindset of resilience and the self-discipline to apply it didn't always work. It wasn't a perfect formula. And what seemed to be missing was an appreciation of the underlying temperament or the underlying biology of the person vis-a-vis -vis instincts. Not instincts like a salmon swimming upstream or a bird building a nest for the first time, but, but instincts, behavioral instincts, uh, responsibility, optimism, uh, altruism, uh, behaviors that, as Bob pointed out, we see young children exhibit without a model, without any instruction. And I started considering, well, how did parents raise children for thousands of generations, even before we had an organized religion? Because organized religion was the first set of guideposts to how to raise a child. And, and 
we as Jews, I like to think we have the best set of guideposts, but every religion <laughs> thinks that. Um, but, but even before there was the organized religion, and, and I think we did it instinctually. And so I convinced Bob, because initially Bob said, I don't believe you. Well, he, oh, wait he, a second. Didn't, he just said, uh, yeah. I said, I don't want to write, I don't want to have a rewrite of raising resilient children. And this right. is the wonderful thing about our dialogue and co collaboration. It got into some interesting discussions. And soon I said, this is really great. And it was fun because I was able to use, and Sam used part of the pandemic then to write this. I'm sorry, Sam, for interrupting. Well, no. And, and so we identified seven that you've read in the book that we could talk about briefly if you want. Um, and we identified three others. And, and those three, I think, helped us survive. But in our current society, uh, don't work very well. And the Bible teaches lessons about all three of them. Uh, uh, but, but we've sort of lost our way. And, and the three, and, and at one point, I wanted to write a book titled How to Raise a Complete Idiot. And it was going to be a tongue-in-cheek book. And our, uh, our, our agent said, no, 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 no. And so I knew. I wish you would have written that one. Okay, go ahead. We, we had to write a book that was a little more positive. But these three instincts, it's belief, not belief in a, in a functional way, but when belief is used to hurt other people, to dominate other people. And, and in the world today, belief is a valuable ally for a lot of people, even if it hurts others, even in the absence of fact. So belief, fear of difference. And, and, and you had to believe for thousands of years the sun would come up. How did you know? You had to believe, right? And, and the second is fear of difference. We're, we're just afraid of anything that's a little different. Uh, and, and I think because for millions of, or for, for maybe millions, but hundreds of thousands of years, you, you drank from the same water source. You ate from the same food source because any deviation could cause illness or death. And, and then the last one, I, I coined the term, or I borrowed the term from another researcher, uh, brain dancing. And, and, and the last one is, at, at any given moment, any of us seem to be prone towards an aggressive response to real or perceived threat. And you take those three, belief, a rigid belief that causes harm, a fear of difference, and an aggressive response to anything, and, and I think it explains a lot of what's going on in the world. And what we're proposing is that the only way we're going to combat those seven, they're in our genes, no matter who we are, is to build on these other seven, to strengthen these other seven. All right, so let's and take I, some time. I know I'm cutting you off, uh, but only because I want to talk about your book a little bit as time right, right. continues to wind down. So it's, you called your book Tenacity in Children. So obviously you believe that if we can, if we'll translate the word tenacity, but if we can teach our children tenacity, then no matter what their failings may be, they can shine anyways. So Bob, so Bob could you talk about that? Maybe a quick example? Well, when you say uh, shine, there are different ways. My mind goes in, in several uh, different directions. What we're saying here is, that if we focus on these instincts that are there at birth to a greater or lesser extent in different kids, then we really are, as Sam talks about, it's really a strength-based model. 
So just to give you an example, one of the things Sam mentioned, you know, islands of competence. A kid may have difficulty in some areas, but they also, what helps intrinsic motivation and intuitive optimism is when they believe that they have certain strengths that are also valued by adults in their lives. And so a child who has learning problems, one of the things for years when I would go up to school, I'd hear about the problems, but you know, if I was in your neighborhood consulting about a kid in your school, I'd say after 10, 15 minutes, now that I've heard about some of the problems, if we want this child to be more motivated or whatever, and th there are a couple questions I ask. What do you see as this youngster's strengths, their beauty, their islands of competence? Another thing Sam and I found in, in research is one of the most motivating forces is when kids feel they are making a positive difference in the life of someone else. In our book, Raising Resilient Children, we said we think there's an inborn need for children to want to help and tenacity. We say it's, it is, it's there from birth. So another thing is like with that boy you mentioned in your classroom, if we were getting together, all of us and brainstorming for now, we'd say, I'd ask, what is one thing this child feels he or she is doing at school that they feel is making a difference in this school, a positive difference? Because there's a wealth of information and studies to show that that helps kids to be more motivated. And, that, and then it ties to kids wanting to be of help kids being empathic in that regard. So I know I'm, I'm sharing with you almost like if Sam and I go into a school or we're talking to parents, those are the kinds of questions we ask and not just tell us what's wrong with your child, tell us the problems. Because the last thing I wanna say is, like neuroscientist Richard Davidson said, when you create positive emotions, whether in a classroom or in a therapy office or whatever, you actually activate parts of the brain that have to do with well-being and leads to better problem solving. So I, I, I know I was probably all over the map, but that's the way I start, started to think about things. And that's why in the collaboration with Sam, when he came about the book Tenacity, it made so much sense. After some initial questions, it made so much sense to say, this is what we really have to nurture. There are questions we could ask parents and teachers and therapists so they can focus on these very positive attributes. All right, so, once, David, before I let you talk, Sam, one second. David, you give us a few extra minutes. Is that okay? Great. Okay, now I have a, few, a little extra time. Okay, I'm sorry, Sam, I cut you off. Go ahead. So, so I, I realize we're running out of time. So, one, uh, truth in advertising. Why the word tenacity? Yes. Uh, uh, we, we tried to find a term. There are no other books using that title. I love uh, this title. I like the word tenacity. Book. Right. Thank you. So, and, and it's kind of a, what we felt like was the resilience is, is knowing how to think, how to feel, what to do. The self-discipline is having the self-control to do what you know. And tenacity is the fuel that drives it, the strength of conviction. So we've created tenacity as an umbrella under which we say, here are the seven instincts that drive tenacity. But it is it's not that part of it is not science that part of it is marketing how we organize it but but maybe i could just take you through the seven just quickly uh, you, you could try i i think we'll be better off because you've actually i've been watching and checking my my notes you guys keep throwing in all the different um <laughs> names of the, of your of your levels over and over so I, i'm watching how you throw them in which i love by the way i tell you what i have a different question for you 
Okay. Uh, what one of the, uh, the one of your I forgot you call these things on the back of the book. You have uh, you have Eric Lavoie wrote something nice on the back, and his teachers we we like to listen to Eric Lavoie. So years ago, Rick Lavoie had something he called parachute parents, where in wealthier schools, every time you forgot your lunch or or you forgot to sign a paper, your parents came and saved the day. And I believe reading through this book, the last thing you guys want to teach anyone is that parents are supposed to come in and save the day. We're supposed to be raising our children. So I tell you what, you can each pick one or two in our few minutes left um, and tell me what you want parents to give their children so the children can have these islands of competency. Is that the right word? And uh, let's see where that takes us and leave us with a message and we'll figure out how to get your book and we'll wrap it up. So, uh, all right, Sam, you go yeah. first. <laughs> okay. So the one I want to pick will be of interest to you as an educator and to parents. Simultaneous intelligence. I don't use the word intelligence anymore because for thousands of years, intelligence was defined as how well you solve problems, not how well you could read or do math or how many years you went to school. By the current school's definition of gifted, prior to 1800, there were no smart people. <laughs> so we've, we've, we've gone in the wrong direction. So the term I use is simultaneous, and simultaneous is a term coined by a Russian neuropsychologist, Luria. And, it, and I'll explain it because I think there is a takeaway message here for parents. Simultaneous means seeing how all the pieces fit together and solving a problem at the same time. So creativity is thinking outside the box. Simultaneous is leaving no piece of information within the box unconsidered as you solve a problem. And I'll give you two quick examples. If I say 2, 4, 6, 8, 10, you only need to know 10 to predict 12 in the sequence. But if I say 1, 3, 6, 10, 15, to predict the next number is 21, you have to simultaneously see that the gap between every pair of numbers keeps getting bigger by 1. If I give you 10 facts about an animal and you pick three, you may choose an animal that matches the three but doesn't match the remaining seven. Good simultaneous thinkers, good critical thinkers, see how all the pieces fit together. And for years, we talked about intelligence as set in stone. This is your child's IQ, but now we know that critical thinking experiential, in an experiential way can be increased. And there's research studies showing teaching kids to think critically generalizes, not just to what they're thinking about, but to other subjects, and their grades go up, and their, their problem solving goes up. So the takeaway message for parents is, don't do all the thinking for your kids, whether they're two or eight or 14. Create experiences where they have to solve problems and don't judge the solutions they provide. Help them analyze the adequacy of the solution or the inadequacy of the solution. Uh, and, and, and there's plenty of materials that you can look at, even if you just Google on the web, teaching kids critical thinking you find all kinds of, of resources. So I think of the seven instincts, that one strikes people as, as fairly new, that no one's ever heard of that before, but it, re it really is the future of the way we conceptualize intelligence. And, and Bob knows one of the tests that I've developed, the Cognitive Assessment System, the CAS, is the most widely used in a lot of states in the schools because it, it is not biased against minorities. 
or lack of experience. It truly tests critical thinking and innate problem solving. Cool. Bob? Okay, I'm going to very quickly uh, say this. Sam gave such an eloquent uh, answer. Is Parents have to remember a couple of details. One is in all the research about resilience, one of the main factors is for kids to be resilient, they need at least one adult who believes in them and stands by them. As the late Julia Siegel talked about, the charismatic adult. So what we say in, in all of our books is we serve as models for our kids. If we want kids to be compassionate and empathic, we have to be. And Sam and I have a number of questions in, in several of our books, including for parents to think about. What words do you hope your children use to describe you? What do you say and do on a regular basis, intentionally say you know, and do, so they're likely to describe you in the way you want? And what words do you think they would use to describe you? And during the pandemic, with all the webinars I've given for parents and teachers, I've added one. Imagine 10 years from now, someone would interview your students or children and say to them, what do you remember about the pandemic? What do you remember about how you handled it? What do you remember about how your teacher or your, you know, your child remembered it? So I say to parents, kids need charismatic adults in their lives. We have to be supportive. We serve as critical models for all of those attributes there. Like when Sam talked about critical thinking, if we face a problem and the first thing we say is, oh, God, I'm not going to try to solve this problem. It's, you know. Our kids sees that. So how we help kids to problem solve and see different solutions is critical. So I would say how we serve as a model and how we can put ourselves in the shoes of our kids and see the world through their eyes. But you can see they all overlap. Guys, this was so much fun. My time is over. Tenacity in children, nurturing the seven instincts for lifetime success. Sam Goldstein, Robert Brooks. Thank you, guys. There's the book. We have it up. Go to Amazon. It's worth the read. Help your children. And, of course, the music is playing. I hope you enjoyed it short and sweet. Thank you to my wonderful production team. We have David and Kelsey in the back. And we've left you some food for thought. Until next time. I'm Rabbi Tzvi Jacobson. You've been listening to Let's Talk Torah on NM Streamcast. And until next time, don't forget to think about it. A million dreams while the world we're gonna make.